Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us for Episode 9. I'm your host, Steph Nugebauer, and here with me today is another husband and wife duo, Jonathan and Krista Petzold. Uh, today, we're actually going to be talking about marriage. Uh, why is marriage a life issue? Well, when I asked my husband uh, this question, my husband is a pastor, granted, but he does have a very good sense of humor. His immediate response was, uh, because you're stuck for life. And while there's some truth to that, it's also a lot more than that. We'll let Jonathan and Krista answer that throughout the course of this conversation today, which admittedly will by no means be all-inclusive on the subject of marriage, but it will be a start. Before we get into the meat, Jonathan, Krista, can you give us a little introduction? Yeah, so uh, Chris and I are originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan area. Uh, we grew up in the same uh, church, confirmation class, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, got married during our time at Concordia, Wisconsin. And uh, from there, I went to Concordia in St. Louis. Um, and then my first call at a seminary was uh, in central Wisconsin. And uh, now uh, we're in the Chicago area at uh, Trinity in Roselle. Um, we've got four kids, uh, Krista, you, you homeschool and, uh, mm-hmm. you also just got a master's degree, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Krista, just applause all around. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just <laughs> finished, um, a master's in theology from Concordia Irvine, um, which was really enjoyable. Um, and, uh, other than that, I um, I homeschool our four kids, or the first two, I guess, and uh, we'll get to the others when they get older, and um, yeah, so that that's that keeps me busy. I don't do anything other than that, but. You don't do anything other than that. Yeah, I think yeah, that would keep it. you. <laughs> I think that would keep you very busy. It, uh, it does. Yeah. So, when did you guys start dating? Uh, I think it was like 2007. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we were seniors in high school when we started dating. Yep. And we were already friends for a good year or two before that. So we knew each yeah. other pretty well. Okay. Yep. Then went to CUW for undergrad together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. We were there and then, yeah, the rest mm-hmm. is history. So, awesome. Yeah. So if you're all right with it, Jonathan and Krista, let's just get to the hard questions right away because uh, you wrote an entire really a book on this and, and, and more than this, but you should be professionals at really answering all the questions I'm going to shoot at you uh, today during our conversation. So um, let's get to it. So cool. Jonathan and Krista, you um, started dating. You were all in. You loved each other very much. You made the preparations for your big wedding day. Uh, the night before your wedding, uh, you're still Krista, whatever your maiden name is. <laughs> the next day you wake up, you say your vows um, before the congregation, before God himself, you're married. What has changed, I guess, overnight? And then once you've said your vows, and mainly what I'm getting at is, what's the difference in the commitment of marriage from the commitment that you had to each other while you were dating? Yeah. So, um, once, you know, when we, when you stand up there in church and you make those really big promises, 
um, you know, to, um, to be together forever. And um, there's, there's a reason that we have a big to do about, you know, marriage. There's a reason that you invite everyone, you know, or almost everyone. And, um, and there's a reason why we did it in church. And it's because, uh, you know, we like to say that, or we, we like, we always say that, um, you know, marrying each other was the best decision we ever made. Mm -hmm. And we get to say that because we don't believe in decision theology. (laughs) Um, so, you know, uh, that works out really well as Lutheran, we can say that. Um, but you know, you, you find somebody who, um, you can partner with in, in following, um, Jesus and in serving the church and the world together. Um, and then you commit to that person. And from that moment, um, you're no longer responsible just for taking care of yourself. Now there's somebody else who you, you know, have promised in front of everyone, you know, to put their needs before your own. Yeah. I think, I think what, what makes that big difference is that there's unconditional commitment at that point. So like you're saying, um, you, you make a public vow uh, to each other and before God uh, that you're going to stick with that person uh, in sickness and in health for richer, for poorer, uh, for better, for worse. Right. Um, and, and that's really what makes that big difference. So, uh, you know, as a pastor, I might talk with uh, couples um, who may not be married, but might be living together, right? And and that's kind of one of the questions I usually ask them is, well, you know, uh, if they're in my office because they want to get married, I ask them, well, why why get married uh, as opposed to just living together? Um, or, or I might encourage couples, you know, hey, you should think about marriage because uh, it's that unconditional commitment that allows the other person to actually uh, be who they are. Uh, otherwise, like, you know, couples, um, I, I worry that the partner would not feel like they could be truly themselves without the fear of the other person. Well, like scaring the other person away. Right. So there's that unconditional uh, commitment there, which, which I think kind of gets to the heart of uh, the book that we wrote uh, male and female, uh, because that unconditional commitment actually is a picture of Christ in the church. Um, and that's, that's what Ephesians five kind of gets at when, when Paul gets into that, he says that, uh, if you read Ephesians five, I think starting around verse twenty one, um, he talks about how uh, you know all this like um, head and helper stuff, uh, and, and then he gets to the point right at the end of the passage, right at the end of the section, saying that you know uh, this mystery is profound, but what I'm saying is that it actually uh, refers to Christ and the church, and and so I think that on the wedding day, the bride and groom are actually imaging Christ to each other. Um, they're they're giving a gospel picture of what it means to be like Jesus and the bride, you know, that unconditional relationship and commitment that Jesus has towards us. And so that moment from that moment on, um, that relationship is very safe. Hmm. You know, uh, it would be very, very hard, um, to walk away from it at that point. And so you can truly be yourself. You can truly be vulnerable. And, uh, that person, um, there's a lot at stake. And within that comes that kind of security, uh, which, you know, your other relationships don't necessarily um, have. So it's, it's a very beautiful thing to have a relationship that provides that, that level of safety um, where you can be like, you're, you know, let them see 
all of you, if that makes sense. So I guess what I'm hearing you say, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the difference between dating someone and then being married to someone is ultimately that commitment. And you said, uh, Jonathan, that unconditional commitment, which is a phrase that you use in your book that um, (laughs) keeps your relationship. It provides that safety and security. Whereas if you're just dating someone, you haven't made those vows to each other. Um, And so that's not necessarily a a permanent thing. It's not a secure relationship. Mm -hmm. And people, um, according to God's design, thrive in secure relationships, um, especially ones that image who Christ is um, to the church. Is that a a correct way to sum that up? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, uh, Jesus has made that kind of commitment to us. You know, and and so I think that's that's what you, you kind of lose if you don't have a, uh, a a marriage commitment to each other is is you lose that understanding of who Jesus is and what He does for us. You know, Jesus was uh, baptized; He like you know became one of us through His baptism, and and He uh, commits Himself to us fully in each of our baptisms as well. You know, and 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 that's for better or worse, for richer or for for poorer, in sickness and in health, right? That Jesus uh, commits to us, even even when we're poor, miserable, dirty, rotten, no good, stinking sinners. Uh, Jesus is still committed to us, um, and so we have the opportunity in our marriages to do the same uh, towards our our spouses. And I've I've heard it said too, which I I believe to be true. But Jonathan, you're the pastor that, um, you know that. Christ and the church don't image what human marriage is, but rather that Christ in his relationship with the church is the truest reality. And marriage is somewhat of a, of a shadow of that to mm-hmm. represent what that, that most pure relationship right. is. Is that, is that a safe way to describe it? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say so. Like, like, so we're, we're never going to have a, uh, a perfect marriage, you know, um, because we're still sinners. So uh, our marriages will fail. Uh, we won't image uh, Christ's love to each other uh, as spouses the way that we should. Um, you know, it, it's always going to fall short of how God designed it to be. But but the the gospel, like the good news, is not that, hey, you can have a perfect, perfect marriage, which you got to be careful about those kinds of books, right? Because that's not possible. Um, the, the gospel and the good news is that marriage is just a picture of Christ in the church. So that's, that's like the real thing. Uh, Jesus is the true head. Um, he is the true husband. Um, and the church is the bride. Um, and, and no matter what, uh, happens to us or no matter what we're guilty of, um, that's always still true. You know, Jesus is still committed to us. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. You've already kind of answered, well, not kind of, you have answered why we need marriage. But how does marriage benefit people outside of that relationship of husband and wife? Within the church, um, well, we, we kind of, we talk about in our book how everyone lives in light of the marriage reality. Even if you are not married, if a single person um, or a person who was married or Uh, you know, children, like we all live in a world where marriage is a thing. Um, You know, we're, uh, our first experience with marriage is as children, you know, if our parents had a good marriage that that forms us, it gives us 
security. It helps us understand how we came to be in the world and our place in it. And that level of safety um, and security and trust and vulnerability that like you have with your spouse in marriage, you also provide to your children during their most formative years. Um, a secure marriage between the parents gives children a really safe place to grow up. Um, so that is an obvious way that marriages benefit the church. Um, and even if, uh, you know, uh, you're born into a world where you do not have two parents with a healthy marriage or your parents are not married or your parents are not together or there's brokenness and hurt there, um, you're still born into a world where marriage is a possibility and a reality. And people that you do know who you can see their relationship with each other still provides that witness to that kind of sacrificial love um, that Christ has for the church. And, and therefore um, it's a really, it's a really important way that we even just share what we know to be true and share the gospel is by living out that kind of forgiveness in our, our most significant relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'd add to that, too, that, uh, well, sometimes I like to refer to marriage as like a world-saving SWAT team, uh, because that's that's kind of how God designs uh, marriage to be. And, and that that's kind of the other purpose, besides just imaging Christ in the church, that's kind of the other purpose that marriage has. What God actually sets Adam and Eve up as, as the first married couple and as the head and the helper, um, is, is to, you know, of course... Uh, take care of creation or have dominion the same, the same way that God would. And then also to be fruitful, multiply. So, so have babies, uh, but, but then to raise those uh, children as the next generation of people who are going to take care of creation. Uh, and, and when you have a marriage, you've got both the head who kind of leads in that and the helper who's like that divine intervention to make, to, to make that all work well to serve creation. Mm. So, so I guess that's kind of how it's a life issue as well. Like, like, like literally God, uh, you can almost say it this way, like for God so loved the world that he gave Adam and Eve to take care of it. Hmm. Well put. All right. Again, let me recap. Cause we're already going through a lot of stuff pretty quickly. Hmm. Marriage is to one, serve each other. Um, two, to look outside of itself to serve the world and to care for creation. And then of course, any, you know, children that are um, a result of that marriage relationship too. Is that a decent summary? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. Awesome. Two for two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Jonathan, you've mentioned this head and helper stuff. Can you kind of start maybe even from the beginning? I mean, where do we root this theology in really? You mentioned Genesis 1 and 2, but can you dive into that more deeply? Head mm -hmm. and helper uh, when it comes to specifically men and women in marriage. But now you're saying that this also has you know significance for outside of marriage as well. Can you just yeah. expand on that? Yeah, I think I think uh, when, when at least when you have the head, uh, Adam is kind of um, set up as the head, if you will, uh, at creation. Um, and one, one of the things that we do in our book is we we look at Genesis one and two as 
um, kind of like the the perfect sort of way that God set everything up because yeah, it was pre-fall. Before, pre-fall, yeah. we see Adam and Eve and their relationship. Um, and we the words head and helper, mm-hmm. the word head isn't there in Genesis 2, but we it is in Scripture. Um, we right. see it later. Adam is given this job, right? He's given this job of caring for creation. He's given primary responsibility, and we see that because after the fall, uh, when God confronts Adam and Eve, he turns to Adam first mm. um, and asks him. And so Adam has this responsibility. He receives the word of God first. He is instructed to um, to uh, lead those around him, which is Eve in this case, um, into dependence on God. And that's kind of our key right. definition of what it means to be ahead is to lead those under your care into dependence on God. Um, and then, which is why I, I might just, uh, add right now, uh, we don't necessarily go and, uh, affirm like stereotypes, you know, we don't, we don't, um, we don't talk about how like headship or, uh, masculinity is all about being macho and, uh, tough and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's not independence. It's actually dependence. Yeah. Um, so, so we see the word helper in Genesis two right away. When, when Eve is created, God says, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helpmate uh, suitable for him or mm-hmm. however that the translations are a little different, but, right. um, and so Eve is called, um, Adam's helper. Um, and we, we do get the word head, Later in uh, the New Testament, when um, in in the text about how Jesus does perfectly what Adam failed to do. Um, so like uh, in um, Colossians 1, there's this ancient hymn portion, which is, says about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. And by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then it goes on to say he is the head of the body, the church. So that head language is in that text. Mm -hmm. And that whole text is about how Jesus redeems or does for us what Adam failed to do in the fall. Um, So he's called that firstborn into the new creation, um, whereas Adam was the firstborn of the old. Right. So that's kind of where the head and helper language comes from in Scripture. Did you want to add anything to that or? And I guess, I guess maybe to go into the helper side of it too, like that comes from the word etzer. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, maybe the, the interesting uh, piece of trivia is that that describes, uh, in the Bible, the word etzer describes God the most. So it's, You most often see that word yeah, in reference to God. Right. And so like he's like the helper of Israel. Uh, he is uh, our helper. Um, the Holy Spirit is described as the helper right. that is in the sent to the church in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can kind of see Jesus almost taking that kind of role towards the Father as well, mm-hmm. um, because he is subservient uh, to the Father. Uh, so so it almost has this, and you see it in like the Psalms and all that kind of stuff. So it's almost like this like divine military intervention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so with Eve then being called the helper, it's not like a second-class citizen status. You know, it's not like a, um, you know, cute two-year-old helping to unload the dishwasher. It's like 
roll your sleeves up and, and it's like needed. Yeah. It's like, uh, this is going to be necessary. I mean, you can see that from the jobs that Adam is given, be fruitful and multiply. He can't even do that by himself. Right. (laughs) Obviously he's going to need help and then have dominion as well, that she is to partner with him in caring for creation Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the crazy thing too, is that, uh, when you read through the creation account, you know, constantly God is saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, right? At the end of every day, he declares it good. And even before sin enters the picture, he says that it's not good that the, the man is alone. Like, like, like her helpership is uh, entirely necessary for the well-being of creation to the point where her absence is, is declared not good. Hmm. Well, I like the whole, um, like, imagery of this warrior woman like coming in uh to (laughs) not maybe just save the day but like i am a necessary function in this uh yeah you can't do this alone adam Mm -hmm. and you know you jonathan you were careful to say and i guess you know I'm, i'm making some implications here but you were really careful to say that helper is most often used in reference to God. And mm-hmm. I'm guessing you were careful to say that because some reactions to these terms head and helper might be, uh, whoa, hold up. Like, yeah, I don't want to be a helper as a woman. Like, I want to be this right. warrior. But the beautiful thing about this picture is that this this warrior woman and this warrior dude come together, I mean, to serve each other and to serve creation. And I mean, we'll dive into this more as we go on. And really we could have multiple spinoffs off of this one conversation. Um, Mm. But maybe if, if you can provide some answers to possible pushbacks of, of the listeners who are thinking, so, um, Okay, so what Jonathan and Krista are doing are just kind of repackaging this theology of biblical marriage and kind of making these gender roles seem a little bit, you know, less um, stereotypical, a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, tidy. But you're not saying that, uh, so the dude is supposed to mow the lawn, the wife is supposed to make the dinner and unload the dishes and be the helper um, mm-hmm. in the sense of, well, getting, you know, Adam off to bed on time, you know, um, (laughs) I'm guessing that's not what you're saying. And you've already hinted at that. So some of the pushbacks that, that you could see, how would you answer that as far as like why head and helper are good words to use, why they're a part of God's good design? Right. Well, they're in scripture. So, um, we, one of our goals in this book was to not go beyond what scripture says. We want to make, we want to say, when we're when we approach the Bible and we ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about male and female, about our manhood and womanhood? We want to ask. We want to say everything the Bible says and nothing the Bible doesn't say. Right. <laughs> That's the goal. Like, it's a good rule of thumb. Um, yes. Yeah. So like we don't want to shy away from the stuff the Bible says that makes us uncomfortable um, because God says it. Is the word of God. That's how it is. Uh, we also don't want to go like do the, therefore it might be a good idea if, and then kind of add in all of our own thoughts, you know, um, we want to let God's word speak for itself. So I think one of the reasons that this helper language 
causes us problems is because we live in a world where um, like the values of the world are not the values of God. And so um, a person's value in the world's economy uh, is assumed to be like related to um, how much power they have, how much money they have, how much influence they have, um, how happy they are. Like these are the things that give value in like our worldly economy and our the way that we're used to thinking, um, even as a society and a culture. And when you look at that um, work that is uh, frequently you know, like not compensated with money or not given sort of power or these things is like stay at home mom, like, right. Like being a stay at home mom (laughs) or even just having children. Um, these roles like are not viewed as having that level of esteem. Um, but God's word speaks with great esteem about these tasks. And so, um, when we say, Oh, I don't want to be, I don't, you know, when we when we get concerned about the submissive language or the helper language, it's usually because we're assuming um, things about the value of that that come from the world and not from God's word. Because God has great esteem for um, caring for others, you know, and and so those those values um, of the world kind of sneak into our thinking, um, even without us wanting to. Mm-hmm. And another piece of this is. Um, abuse, right? The curse of sin. And um, after the fall, that these roles that were supposed to be beautiful, um, which God does not remove these roles after the fall, he still um, upholds the roles of head and helper when he speaks to Adam and Eve, but he says that they're going to be hard now. Um, Work is going to be hard there's thorns. There's thorns, you know, and and childbirth is going to hurt. And um, the Eve's desire will be against her husband. Is that a good translation? And Yeah, it, it ends up being like Adam uses his role to dominate and domineer. And uh, he uses power in and authority in selfish ways instead of instead of self-sacrificing ways. Mm-hmm. Whereas Eve, uh, who's the helper, she's the one who God designed to, uh, you know, give good advice and, and be um, be the one who intervenes and improves on the work being done. Uh, because Adam is using his role in a uh, self-serving way, and he's got all the power, uh, if, if you will, as the head. Of, of course, she's going to want to have that power for herself then. Like if, mm-hmm. if Adam's not going to uh, serve with it, uh, now sh- it, it's almost like um, she uses her, her her role in like an undermining way and in an ambitious yeah. sort of way. A lot um, of the times yeah. when people push back against the head and helper roles, it is because of, of genuine hurt and yeah, sin pain. that has happened. Um, you know, uh, just having people in power or with headship roles who do not um, lead others into dependence on God and image God's provision and care, but who uh, maybe are exploitative mm-hmm. of that. I think we can all um, kind of understand, understand how beautiful of a thing it is to have good authority over you, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it, it's actually freeing because now you don't have to be the one responsible and making hard decisions and um, all that kind of stuff. You can just rest secure knowing 
somebody's got your back, they're watching over you, you don't have to worry about it. You know, uh, I mean, when you have good parents, you, you know that. And, and actually, when you have bad parents, you know what a gift good authority is because you're not you're not receiving you, it. You need it. You yes. know? Yeah. 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 The spectrum then of kind of the abuse of how this concept of head and helper um, could could go really ranges from like actual you know physical abuse um, of a husband toward his wife or um, verbal abuse likewise, but also um, maybe I can say this too that an abuse of this biblical concept of head and helper would would probably also be a like a domineering husband that makes decisions without his wife's mm-hmm. input because he's the he's the man um right. or i guess i'm trying to think of an example of maybe a a, a female who is kind of a, abusing this this concept mm-hmm. too women can can be manipulative of their influence uh so like women do have this great power to influence and to um, sort of uh, manipulate situations, which is is supposed to be for the good. Like, you know, uh, like if we're talking about, this is not what our book talks about because it's not in the Bible, but like sex differences, right? Uh, Like, you know, women are, they have a lot more communication like abilities in terms of just their brain structure. We can think about more things at the same time, faster, we can talk more, you know, we can probably, most women, this is a huge generalization. So I take it back if it's not true for everyone, but you can talk (laughs) circles around your husband and convince him of almost anything, you know, (laughs) if you wanted to. And so you can misuse that. You can misuse your voice, which is intended to be a a power for good and a power to help him make good decisions. um, If you if you um, sort of take advantage of the amount of influence that you have. So I guess mm-hmm. um, it can go both ways. Yeah, but it does we, go both ways. Yeah, you know? but we do see in scripture, there is a an amount of uh, responsibility that the head is sort of given. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're right in saying like, like he should accept influence from, you know, his, his wife. Um, I mean, that that's why God put Eve there in the first place, right? So it's almost like, hey, husband, uh, God thought it would be a good idea for you to listen to her. So you should accept her influence. You know, uh, he's still responsible. And I think this is the way that it kind of ends up playing out in our marriages is that, um, you know, the head is there to accept responsibility when things go wrong and, and to help to make sh- sure things are taken care of and go right. Um, and, and she's there to help improve on it. And, and I would even uh, argue to call out the head when he's not doing his job well. Um, so it's not like a thing where uh, women are just supposed to sit down and be quiet and not say anything or correct their husbands. No, they should be challenging their husbands toward greater godliness and self-sacrificial uh, mm-hmm. uh, attitudes toward the people under their care. And so it's wise then, I'm, you would say, mm-hmm. of- it is wise of a man to seek out the influence of his wife right. because that is to be for his benefit. Yeah. He, you know, he might be charged with the final decision, if you will, but, but he should always want to uh, know and have the influence of, you know, his, his wife's, you know, advice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I'm kind of throwing you a curveball here, but this, this question just came to mind and you let me know what you think. There's different personalities. Uh, I mean, not you don't even have to take a, a test or be aware of these tests 
to right. know that. And there are some marriages that are made up of maybe what you might assume uh, a traditional kind of um, role would be in that um, the man is decisive, the woman is, you know, supportive, whatever. And that's not really a personality, but I guess what I'm mm-hmm. thinking of is yeah. um, maybe I'm more outgoing and boisterous than my husband. Maybe my husband is really quiet, shy, reserved. How does the head and helper concept play into those kind of personality differences? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, that you kind of touched on something there too, where um, like head and helper is a fixed thing. So it's not like, well, we'll have the head and helper in our marriage, but uh, she's going to be the head and he's going to be the helper. Like, like God actually designs us um, as, as men to be heads and women to be, to be helpers. So I, so I think that that kind of brings out that, that good point there too. But I would say, I mean, I know, I know couples like this and I mean, even I would say like, we're a little bit of that dynamic Mm -hmm. as like, I am, um, more decisive. I know what I want yep. sooner and I <laughs> Jonathan. Can articulate it quicker and more strongly. Um, and, uh, Jonathan is, um, he's a, he's a nine on the Enneagram. If anyone cares <laughs> about that, but, uh, so he is, but you know, the thing I think about a marriage is like, you need to, um, you want to be an expert on your spouse and their strengths. And so like, um, Mm -hmm. I guess this is just speaking from like our experience, but I would say it's really important um, to create a platform for headship for your husband, if you are the helper. So, and this is actually, this goes, this isn't just us, this goes to scripture and to um, like the man's first, um, in the fall, in the story of the fall, uh, the man was passive. Adam was passive. And he let Eve kind of do the leading. And it was it was a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. That was his sin, was passivity and keeping quiet and letting her step in. And he right. knew what the word of God said about the situation. And he chose to take the path of least resistance. And men tend to do that. And... Um, a a wife that is being a good helper should create a platform for her husband to exercise his headship. And so I would say that it is, um, if you uh, have that kind of a strong personality that like, maybe you know what your husband should do before he knows, like, you know, um, encourage him to do it. (laughs) Still let him have the time and the space to come to the, um, understanding of what needs to happen and then allow him to have the leadership in doing it anyway. And, um, you know, the beautiful thing about being a helper is that you don't have to make the last decision. So I can like say anything I think, and I don't have to worry that like, if it's wrong that we won't, you know, like I know that he's going to make a good decision and it gives me a lot of freedom to be able to express all the counterpoints and all the pros and cons. And I can just lay it all out there um, and say, you know, at the end of the day, I really want you to make this decision. And it's a gift to me that I don't have to make it, but this is everything I'm thinking about it. Um, yeah. And it kind of strikes me that, um, I mean, and with, with Adam and Eve, um, they, it, it, you almost have that kind of relationship where, where Eve 
she does a lot of talking in Genesis three, right? Uh, and yeah. Adam doesn't do much talking. Classic, right? right? And, and, <laughs> and it strikes me like if either of them had done their jobs, things would have gone much better, right? right. If Adam had just been like, snake, go back to your hole, we would have all been fine, right? Right. Yeah. Or <laughs> Eve could have said, Adam, Adam you need to call animal this control. is what's happening right now. <laughs> um, the snake is saying this thing that is against God's word. Would you please weigh in as the head? Yeah. And then he would probably have, you know, well, who knows what would have happened, <laughs> right? But like that would have given him a platform then to say, you're right. This is not. We're not going to listen. Yeah, I need to do something about this. Yeah, I need yeah. to call that number and get the snake people out here. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Man, shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bad Monday. Yeah. You know? so. <laughs> well, you guys have talked to, uh, a lot about, um, you know, the decision-making part of what head and helper looks like. But um, maybe we can talk about some practical points. Like, I, I guess I'm trying to think of how listeners could translate this in, in a very... Um, like active way, um, day-to-day, you know, tasks. Um, and my guess is you're going to launch off from serving each other, but I want to know your answer as far as what are some, some, some practical, actionable items for us to image this head-helper relationship in a marriage? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I will say that like in our book, we, we kind of shied away from like making like really uh, like practical applications, just because it's it's different for everybody. But I, I think some some well, or quick, situations or are situations, all yeah, different, yeah. And so I, but some like really quick things that just come to mind is is one I think really honoring um, uh, moms and and what they do, whether whether they're moms who work or stay at home, uh, still honoring them as moms and actually affirming like. You know, if, if, if she does choose to stay at home, like, like honoring that and, and valuing that, because that, that is something in, in, in important that she's doing for the next generation mm-hmm. that it has a huge influence on uh, human life and, and her kids. And so I think um, fathers respecting that is an important thing. Uh, bring fathers into the mix. Um, I think it would be really easy and a mistake to think that those two jobs we mentioned earlier, uh, having dominion and uh, being fruitful and multiplying, I think it would be, be a mistake to say, well, the guys obviously have the dominion and the women, they do all that being fruitful and multiplying thing. Um, I think it, it might be easy to see, all right, yeah, yeah that's how they fall. Uh, men can't have babies, so they get the other one. Uh, but, but both of those jobs are actually given to both Adam and Eve. So I think, I think um, uh, husbands uh, asking for and seeking the advice uh, in, in family leadership matters from, from his wife is an important mm-hmm. thing, but also uh, taking an active role and helping to raise the kids uh, because that, that was Adam's job is to raise that next generation. And that, that's why we say, like, the role of head is to lead in dependence on God. So uh, it, it should be the, the dad's job to uh, to help make sure that his family is going to church, uh, that um, they, they are maybe doing devotions together, or uh, that, you know, the, the, the kids and his wife are well taken care of and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So uh, it's still maybe a little uh, general, but, but you know, just, just recognizing that yeah. they both have roles in just, that. Just uh, and valuing the contributions of the helper into both spheres, like not only respecting and valuing the work that women do as mothers, whether they stay home or work isn't really, that's not really an issue here. Um, but just the, 
the the work and and role of motherhood not only valuing that but also re, like recognizing that um, the helper role is useful in all other areas in the world as well and like mm. women are good at stuff and can be helpful in um in all settings in some capacity without that meaning that the roles are um reduced or, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Well, well, we, I mean, and this isn't as connected to marriage anymore, but we, we do see head and helper patterns of these roles all throughout society. So like the president of the United States being the head and the cabinet being his team of helpers, right? Um, you've got the CEO and the administrative assistant, mm-hmm. right? Um, you, you see this everywhere, yeah. you know? Um, and, and so I think, so yeah, go ahead. So the so a good distinction that we make in the book is that all men are created, like are designed to function as heads and are good at that, and all women are designed to function as helpers and are good at that. However, we only ever see, um, like submission of women to men in scripture within the context of a marriage. So like you know, Paul says, "Wives submit to your husbands." as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife. That is just marriage. So like there's no scriptural command for like all women to submit to all men just because no men are what. men. It's not like we have like a tiered <clears throat> society. Yeah. What I'm hearing you say though, Krista, is that you're not saying that women can't be leaders of a company, um, that right. leader that women cannot be leaders in the business world or take charge. Um, right. You know, what we're talking about is within the context of a marriage of how this is according to God's design, the head, yeah. you know, helper uh, rules. This is how yeah, God's really made good. it. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, uh, I mean, there's like the Proverbs 31 woman, right? She right. was like an entrepreneur. Uh, she was like going out and, and getting it and uh, she was making money. Household. Yeah. Yeah, and parenting. <laughs> right. So it was ironic because like a, a, a text that like usually people are like, oh, the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, uh, and it's like this scary, like, oh, uh, it's like, no, like, like that she's actually doing her thing there. Um, I mean, and you kind of see that all throughout scripture, like these, these women um, actually like uh, living out their helper roles in powerful ways. So like Deborah, uh, she's like leading an army and telling the, the men to like, Come on, you know, lead, uh, and especially when they don't, you know. Um, I mean, you've got uh, just just all throughout the Old Testament, right? Um, Moses's older sister, like you know, helping Miriam. out, uh, yeah, Miriam, and uh, you know, helping out not only watching Moses as he floats down the river, but also uh, you know, helping to lead Israel uh, holding throughout. Holding up his arms, yeah, holding up yeah. his arms, you know. So you, you got that all throughout. Yeah kind of switching gears, but not really, because this is all related. Um, in your book, you really seem to emphasize the differences in the sexes. Whereas if you look out just in our culture today, it seems like society is doing its very best to erase mm-hmm. any kind of differences between the sexes. Can you give a little comment on why you think it's important to emphasize the differences in man and woman? Yeah. So I think it, it, it kind of comes down to, we, we use the word design a lot in our book, that, that we're, we're designed uh, in a specific way. Um, and and that, that we have this relationship toward God where, where he designs us um, 
the way that that he wants us to be right which which is kind of a controversial thing to say in our world and our culture today but um like like as christians we actually believe um in like an external definition of who we are uh and our and in our day and age we like to really define ourselves internally like we want to say who do i want to be who do i think i am um and i'm going to try and find self self-actualization or realization right but but we actually say that no like like god tells us who we are and and, and that's a long gospel thing like like jesus has declared us righteous he's declared us saints um he's he's declared us forgiven that's all external and then it's also true in a law way like he designs us uh to to be male or female he designs us to be uh his creatures and to take care of creation and to live a certain way um, so, so it kind of comes down to that design, uh, knowing that we're accountable to somebody, uh, who's, who's higher than us, which means that like sex is not a cultural construct. Uh, and, and I think that that's kind of the big push today is to call it a, a, a cultural construct. Like we, um, we, we just kind of made up and evolved uh, over over many, many years, uh, this idea of what women should be and this idea of what men should be. And, and that's probably true in some ways. Uh, so we should deconstruct the ways that that is harmful, but mm-hmm. but not throw out the whole thing to where we say it's all garbage because we, we want to go back to what scripture de- mm-hmm. defines it as and, and what scripture says who we are. Which is why we make the big point in our book, like it all images the gospel, like right. like God created marriage, created us male and female uh, to image Christ. And even when we're not married, even as singles, uh, in our design as um, you know heads and helpers, uh, we actually still image Jesus in, in those ways uh, because we've been baptized. Like we've regained that image of Christ uh, through our baptism, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah, baptism is really cool. Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I picked up your book, guys, uh, I realized that um, we have a mutual professor we both really admire, Dr. Joel Bierman. Um, and I assume that you really liked him, too, because he wrote the foreword for your book. Uh, he says this in the foreword. Uh, he says, the secret to a long and happy marriage is simple. Every day, strive to die to yourself and live for the other. I mean, that's kind of shocking to hear because mm-hmm. you don't usually ever hear something like that. Can you explain to the listeners what what Dr. Bierman meant by that? Because uh, it really stands out. Again, talk talk about something that's countercultural to mention the word dying when you're talking about marriage. That's just not something people say. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that, that you're actually... Be, being that self-sacrificial towards uh, your spouse, um, you know, I, I think that's what he's getting at: is that you're you're dying to yourself and, and living for the other. Um, you know that in marriage, God has actually made you a gift to your spouse, uh, which is also good news for you because that means that God has made your spouse a gift to you. Uh, so you're actually uh, dying uh, for for the other um, that that kind of way. Um, uh, I know, I know. This is a Lutheran podcast, and I'm a Lutheran pastor, and all that kind of stuff. But I remember uh, Dr. Bierman talked about uh, how how marriage uh, is not a sacrament, uh, but it's very, very close, and that uh, it doesn't. You're not forgiven, be you know, because you get married uh, or whatnot. You're, you're you know, uh, but but 
we also believe as Lutherans that sacraments are what are things that that God instituted. So just like God instituted baptism uh, and he instituted uh, uh, communion, uh, he also instituted way back in Genesis uh, marriage. And, and it's, it's a gift that God gives to you through your spouse to take care of you uh, and, and actually to even forgive you because uh, chances are your spouse uh, knows um, all your sins and all the ways that you fall short more than anybody else in the world does. And so when you're forgiven from your spouse, it's a beautiful thing, uh, which is why we, we uh, many times uh, uh, encourage uh, uh men and women to practice confession absolution in their marriages. Uh, but uh, I, I think the thing is, is that when, when you see yourself as a gift to your spouse and you're not trying to get something from them, like you're not trying to make it like a, um, a transaction, uh, you actually, it makes marriage that much more beautiful, right? Uh, you're dying to yourself, living for the other, and they're doing the same towards you. Hmm. You had a really interesting word in there, uh, transaction. And, you know, what I'm maybe could guess at what you're, you're talking about, again, look out in the the world today. And we, we see a lot of people choosing a spouse um, based on um, what they have to offer um, us as individuals, or, you know, I'm looking for a, a husband that will meet my needs. Um, I guess as you're going to say, this is not a good way to to um, look for a spouse. And how would you use that that word transaction then in relation to marriage and finding a partner? Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, you know, I I guess I, I want to recommend a book here. Actually, um, so I read this book that was written by a professor I had at Irvine. Um, it's by Jeff Mallinson and it's called sexy, the quest for erotic virtue in perplexing times. It sounds like it's PG 13, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> um, but he has this idea of, uh, he talks about non-transactional relationship in the book. And that's probably where we started using that word non-transactional. And what that really means is we usually approach relationships thinking, you know, what can I get out of this? Right. What is this person? Is this and we ask the question a lot. I mean, think about how many times you hear somebody say something like this relationship isn't working for me, you know, or yeah. um, all and, the time. So, yeah, all the time. And so um, that's really that's really what this is about, like is about when you look at your relationship with your spouse, instead of asking, am I getting what I need to out of this person? How can I get what I need to out of them? Um, thinking more along the lines of what do they need from me right now that I can do for them? And then not viewing that in a transactional way. Like sometimes we think like, uh, well, she seems stressed. Maybe if I do the dishes, that will calm her down and my evening will go better. Even though you're doing the dishes for her, that's still transactional thinking, right? Because you're doing the dishes for her so that she'll calm down and your evening will go better. You know, I, I'm sorry for the gender pronouns there. It could have gone the other way around too, right? <laughs> he could be stressed because the house is messy. And so she could pick up before he comes home from work so that he will be calm. Mm. And that if she's doing it out of love for him because she just wants him to have a pleasant day because 
because she, that she knows she can provide that. That's one thing. But if it's out of like, I'm hoping then that he'll do this thing for me, then that's transactional thinking. And we all do that all the time, you know, um, but we want to practice thinking non-transactionally, right? And that is where that selfless, sacrificial, like dying to self-love comes in. It's another way of talking about dying to self, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's another like Hmm. word for that. And so I'd say like when you're looking for a spouse um, or thinking, considering marriage, um, instead of asking, what will I get out of this person? Are they good enough for me? Will they make enough money for me? Will they be funny enough to entertain me <laughs> for 50 years with good jokes or whatever, you know, your, your, um, your standards are, um, like those are good things. But, um, and, and before you're in that covenant marriage, it's important to ask, is this person a good person to be with? Like, you don't want to like, jump into marriage thinking, oh, well, that person's messed up. I could serve them forever. Like, that's probably not going to be a healthy relationship either. Um, But I would say, I would say, ask yourself the question, would this person be a good head or a good helper? Like, if you're a woman and you're considering marriage, ask, is this a man that I can see leading me into dependence on Christ? Is he going to take my children to church every week? Is he going to read the Bible with me? Is he going to encourage me toward Christ when I get distracted? Um, Those are the questions you want to ask. And, you know, as a man um, looking for a helper, you want to ask is, you know, is this the kind of woman who is going to sweep in and intervene if I get off track? Is she going to help me have those um, gospel priorities? Is she going to create or provide a platform for me to exercise headship? Mm-hmm. Is she going to help me raise my children in the faith? Like those are the kinds of questions you want to ask, not, not what can I get out of? Yeah. I, I might comment right now too. Like if you're in a marriage right now or, or in a relationship where it does not look that way and it's like not good, it's not like, you know, one of you is not, um, you know, Christian or there is uh, abuse or there's conflict and, and things just aren't working right. Um, you know, like, like find help, you know, find a, find a counselor, uh, talk to a pastor, you know, um, like, like, like God, you know, Jesus loves you. I know it's the most basic thing, right. But Jesus loves you. He also loves your marriage. Um, and, and there's people there to help, you know? So, uh, like, you, you can serve in your role as a head or a helper by saying, you know what, this is not right. And I want this to look more like Jesus. Uh, let's work on this for the sake of the other. So you don't just abandon it or give up on it just because it doesn't look like, you know, a gospel relationship. Mm-hmm. You, you, you lean into it and, and, you know, invite God in to help, you know? Hmm. Yeah. That's a good thing to, um, get across to it, it, you know, also because you mentioned in, you have a whole chapter in your book about that <laughs> about, mm-hmm. um, abuse. Um, and then a whole other chapter about, um, you know, if your, uh, yeah, relationship isn't as you had thought or hoped when you began, what do you do? So this isn't just, um, a book f- for, um, married people who, started out. (laughs) Right. I mean, this is a book for, uh, really for everyone to read. And, um, I guess kind of a side comment here, this book isn't only just for married folks as well. 
Um, Can you kind of give a plug for why other people should read your book besides, you know, our audience we're talking to today? Yeah. um, I think that this might be a good book. I mean, uh, I'm, it was a little bit difficult to like identify a target audience. We're like, well, it'd be really easy for this to be a book for married couples uh, or for women or whatnot. But we were also like, you know, uh, we want people who are single to, to also realize that, hey, they they fully bear the image of God. It's not like they're an incomplete person just because they don't have a spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, like like they, they fully image God as well. And, and Paul speaks very highly of single people, right? Um, but for people who are, I mean, even maybe like teenagers, as they look forward to, uh, you know, in the next few years, possibly being on the dating scene and uh, being married, you know, to say, okay, yep, this will this will help to shape what what I want to expect in my marriage. Uh, and then we also um, uh, kind of had in mind, especially as we approach later on in the book, we have a chapter on homosexuality. Uh, we also wanted this to be a book that um, could be received well by somebody uh, who um, might identify in that LGBTQ plus crowd. Uh, I'm sure that they maybe would not be like, read the book and like say, oh, I'm cool. I'm totally sold. Right. But but where a, uh, a parent or a friend of somebody uh, who does identify that way could even like hand the book to them. And, and they might receive it well. They, they might say, okay, I understand. Maybe I don't agree, uh, but I understand. But maybe it, it might also help those parents to kind of think through things and how they might um, interact with, with that person in their lives, you know, uh, and, and kind so, of think about that. So the, there's, a, there's like two chapters out of the, the eight chapters in the book that are really specific about marriage. Um, but of those chapters, a lot of it is about Christ in the church, right? And so though even those chapters that are about marriage are not, I don't think that they wouldn't, they would be applicable for any Christian would want to, to sort of know that content, because as we kind of already discussed, we all live in light of the marriage reality, even if we are single. Um, uh, but the there's a lot of other topics that we kind of touch in the book. We talk about um, the value of singleness and the vocation of singleness in the church. We talk about parenting. We talk about um, the posture that children are to have toward their parents. And we all have parents. Um, everyone does, right? And then we have we talk about abusive relationships and how that plays into this design. And um, we also talk about the roles of head and helper in the church, which gets you to topics like, you know, women's ordination and, mm-hmm. um, and those other sort of tricky topics. All the hot topics, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are a lot of hot topics. <laughs> and I have read the whole book and I am, yeah, I'm very proud of you guys for how you handled so many topics in really a, a very accessible, short, kind of uh, easy to read. And by easy to read, I don't mean like it's watered down. I just mean it's very accessible for a general audience um, to pick up. And, you know, this conversation is about marriage, but your book is titled Male and Female, Embracing Your Role in God's Design. So you do not have to be a married person to pick this book up. You don't even Mm -hmm. necessarily have to have marriage in mind as you pick it up. Um, There are people who have the vocation of singleness. There are are married couples who, um, you know, as we talked about children who aren't given the gift of children. And this book is still 
for them. Um, there mm-hmm. are people who have questions about, you know, female ordination or, as you had said, the kind of sexual orientation questions. Um, so what's really beautiful about your book is that it talks about the goodness of creation as God designed it. And mm-hmm. I mean, like you, like you had said, you can, you can like it or not, but these are the things that God has laid out for us and it is very good. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So finally, because I think you kind of have a cool story, that's just my opinion, but y'all got married pretty early. I mean, kind of in the scheme of things, you said you were engaged in college and got married at what age were you? So I just turned 21 and Krista, you just turned 20. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's that, two years and, of college left. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that is, that's young in the scheme of how people are getting, you know, mm-hmm. at what age they're getting married today. Um, it at least seems to me though, I haven't done research on this at the average age that people are getting married, um, continues to get older and older. Um, why do you think people are shying away from getting married young? And I guess how is your story, a a kind of a powerful testament to, um, building your marriage on this foundation of, um, you know, Christ and his church. I, I advise everybody to get married young, but but I also don't because like you need to marry the right person. Like don't marry whoever the closest guy is when you're 18 or whatever. That's <laughs> yeah. not what I'm saying. Um, that, so don't hear that. Yeah. Um, I was just the only one available. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody else liked me. No, I'm that's, that's not, that wasn't it. Um, but I think that, um, you know, uh, our families were pretty supportive when we got married. Um, and we didn't really have anyone who was like, I mean, we did have people, there were some people who said, you guys are too young to get married. And, um, and we certainly heard a lot of that from peers, not necessarily any of our close friends who knew us well, but plenty of like other folks our age in the college crowds who were like, oh, you should have fun. You first. should have fun first. Or um, how can you know who you should marry if you don't even know who you are yet? Mm-hmm. Or I could not get married then that at that age because I need time to find myself or for, figure out who I am. For, for some guys, it was like. Uh, well, and they didn't say this to me, but you know, sometimes I hear guys who are like, you know, aren't you supposed to have like three years salary to buy a ring? You know, it's like, uh, well, three months, but uh, also <laughs> not necessarily, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like, um, this idea that you need to like find yourself before you get married really comes from that idea that your spouse is like kind of a commodity, right? It kind of goes back to that idea of like looking for a person who works for you, like, or who's a good match or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cause that's all centered on yourself. Like I want lots of time to kind of peruse the options and pick out the best, uh, which is a really transactional and sort of, um, objectifying way to think about other people, I think. Um, but so I think that, um, like when you, you know, for, if you, we, it worked for us because while we've done a lot of growing and changing and maturing mm-hmm. in the past decade or so, I would say we were pretty spiritually kind of mature. We were sincere Christians and we mm-hmm. had a, we both had um, good examples of marriages in our 
families that we could look to. We knew we knew what marriage was supposed to be, and we knew that it was a commitment, and we knew that it was objective and outside of ourselves, and we knew that we were um, selecting somebody who was, you know, we were in line with mm-hmm. in terms of following Jesus. And, and, and then we, we like shaped each other a lot. So we, we still have maturing to do mm-hmm. and, and we got to like influence each other and who each other would be and become uh, yeah. by, by like still growing up together. And I would bit. say that that was a way that God blessed both of us. Like, um, you know, that, that I, I don't really want to take credit for that, but like, you know, um, it was a gift to me to be along for the ride when Jonathan was in seminary, for example, because we had so many good conversations. He shared all the things that he was learning and that really formed me in a really significant way. And I think I, I don't want to take too much credit, but I don't <laughs> think Jonathan would have gone to seminary if I hadn't told him yeah, that no. he could go to seminary and mm-hmm. like helped him figure out which colleges to go to and helped him figure out what classes to sign up for when he was <laughs> you know, 18 and still kind of figuring it out. So like there were time seasons where like we pushed each other and pulled each other in the correct direction and really were able to um, like, we really have grown together and um, not everyone is going to have that opportunity, but I think that um, it's, I I think it should be more normalized like than it is like, it's okay. It's okay to find the person young like that that happens Mm -hmm. and so you know if you know young christian um people and and they have those that sort of um that correct um christ focused worldview like i would say like don't you don't have to be afraid Mm -hmm. of of that i mean as you were talking it kind of you know strikes me that we kind of had uh something of a head helper relationship that, that you were describing uh as we're dating and like, like uh, yeah. getting married, like, like, yeah, you were pushing me towards going to seminary, like encouraged me to do that and, and helping with the whole class thing. Right. And, um, you know, you were kind of being that helper. Well, I was, me, I was probably right? incredibly annoying. Oh, it, it was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is the time to get engaged, honey. Um, are you going to propose sometime this fall? <laughs> yeah. 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 But, There's the personality so, types coming in really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'd say, yeah. Thanks. You. Yeah. But, um, you know, so I guess it strikes me like, you know, people who are, uh, you know, considering marriage or, you know, uh, looking for a spouse, like, I, I wonder if like, and this is just off the cuff advice, but like, who who does that kind of head help relationship uh, kind of naturally flow with? You know, like like, you know, where is that already evident? You know, and maybe maybe that's that's how you find you know the one if you if you will. Hmm. So really, my all important question is: Do you all still have fun? I mean, after you got married, was that the end of the fun? Well, we watched a lot of Star Wars movies. That together, was the so beginning of the fun. That was the beginning <laughs> of the fun. We more fun now than we had that. No, we always had fun. Yeah. Right? yeah. I think the internet put a damper on it. We had a lot of fun when we were too poor for internet. That yeah. was, those were good years. <laughs> There's a, a lot of freezer pizzas and uh, um, DVDs uh, from the library. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah. Yes. So, Thank you, free yeah, library. We yeah, we know each other really well. And, and like, you know, that's the thing about marriage is like you grow with each other, you know, each other's interests and, uh, you, you know, what like pushes the right buttons and you, you, you start to dream together and want to do things together. And so I, I would say that, 
you know, it's not like marriage is less fun. So you got to have all your fun before you get married. I think that, you know, it's, it's more yeah, fun. When, we wouldn't when know, you're honey. We haven't even really been yeah, adults. It's, it's, that's, that's, true. that's true. You know, but it seems to me from my casual observation, we have a lot of fun. Yeah. Compared to other people. Yeah. I can tell, I can tell just by talking with you guys that yeah, you would be a, a, a great hang. So yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I like what you're saying. And um, I've heard a lot of that same stuff too, Krista, when you said, you know, um, I need to find out who I am. Um, I need to, you know, um, go travel and, um, you know, build in uh, a, a decent income for myself so that we can put a down payment on a house. All of those things, um, I mean, well, they're... Um, you know, notable kind of uh, in themselves, that's not really a scriptural way of Mm -hmm. looking at a relationship, let alone Mm -hmm. a marriage. And And all those things are easier to do together. Yeah. And I think, I think it's like, it's, it's very much okay to be single. Um, But, but don't like force yourself into solitude just because you haven't made it yet. You know, don't say like, I'd love to be married, but I haven't, I don't have the salary or the, you know, because sometimes I hear that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there you is a way to be that. married and be poor at the same time. Like, yeah, you yeah. guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We saved a lot of money getting married in college. <laughs> and honestly, we, we worked really hard at our on-campus jobs and we, you know, pooled our resources. And, you know, we didn't, it was a pretty, it was a pretty good economic. Yeah, the state of Wisconsin gives a lot of uh, nice financial aid for poor married couples in college. I'll, I'll say that. You know, it was good. <laughs> Thank you, Wisconsin. Life Thank you. With uh, Pastor Jonathan. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Well, um, so me and my husband, uh, we've been married. Oh man, I think going on six six years now. So I I, I wasn't as young as you when you got married, and Kirk was in his his thirties, and so sometimes. Um, Again, that's that's just how it is. I wasn't mm-hmm. purposefully yeah. postponing marriage in any way. I was I was looking for a spouse because I felt like that was something that God had called me towards. But you know, a couple episodes back, we had Katie Sherman on talking about gift language, and gift language mm-hmm. doesn't only apply to her topic, but it, it applies to this too. And what are the gifts that God has given us? Marriage in itself is a gift and something that if we're seeking, we wait upon the Lord for. So um, I love your story. I think that's awesome. And what you're saying is there's also a balance there of, um, you know, to not rush in for the sake of rushing in, but to Mm -hmm. wait upon the Lord too, if that's something that you desire. So um, I really appreciate all of the gospel focus that you have in your book. Um, I, it was a, it was a great read and I would really encourage anyone to pick up the book, to buy the book and to read it and then to share it with your, your church so that we can build the church to be functioning in a way that sees God's design as very good. Um, so where, where can they find this book coming out? Where can they get it? Yeah. So, uh, you can go to Concordia publishing house, uh, and they, they've got it on their website there. Uh, we also, we also have a, a, a Facebook group, uh, where we've got like updates and, and whatnot. Um, so you can just find, uh, just search, you know, male and female, uh, embracing your role in God's design and, and yeah, find it there. On Facebook. Yeah. On mm-hmm. Facebook. So. Yeah. <clears throat> and awesome. it's on Amazon as well. So. Yep. Okay. And there, there's a Kindle version as well. So. Mm-hmm. Great. So if you're an e-reader, which I'm not, that's where you can find that. There you go. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jonathan and Krista, for joining us on this episode. Thank you. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thank you for having us. 
And thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes, which drop the second and fourth Fridays of every month. Finally, do you want to know how to get in touch with us? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life. Mm-hmm.